Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. I'd like to thank Clear for supporting my podcast. Clear is a secure identity platform that provides a smooth and quick experience at airports, stadiums, concert halls, and other venues nationwide. For a limited time, you can get two months of Clear for free by going to clearme.com gold2 and use promo code gold2. The Dow Jones ended the week with a 533-point loss, pretty much closing on the low of the day, all while U.S. Treasuries and the U.S. dollar continued to rise and gold and silver continued to fall. The catalyst for the action on Friday seemed to be a pre-market open interview on CNBC with St. Louis Fed President Jim Bullard. And basically, Jim Bullard effectively tightened monetary policy simply with his words. And it seems like he undid some of the damage control that Powell tried to accomplish during his press conference when he tried to take the sting out of the fact that the dot plots indicated that interest rates might start rising slightly from zero in 2023 as opposed to 2024. Well, now apparently 
after we heard from Jim Bullard, the markets now believe that the first rate hike could actually happen before the end of 2022. Not this year, not 2021, but maybe a year from now, we might actually get the first rate hike, and that is what is scaring the markets. But what did Bullard say to convince the markets that a rate hike is now going to happen even sooner than they thought the day before? And basically, what Bullard acknowledged was that the Fed is actually talking about tapering or talking about raising interest rates. Now, if you recall, in his press conference, Powell really kind of went out of his way to say that they weren't talking about tightening because he said those conversations would be premature. It was too soon to actually talk about raising interest rates. But what it was clear was that the Fed was now thinking about talking about raising interest rates, which was something that they weren't doing in the past. Because if you remember, Powell kept saying that we're not even thinking about thinking about thinking about raising interest rates. Well, now as a result of the dot plots moving, it became clear that FOMC members are now actually thinking about raising interest rates. And so that basically counted as tightening monetary policy because the FOMC members went from not thinking about raising interest rates to thinking about raising interest rates. Of course, they haven't raised interest rates. They're simply thinking about something that in the past they weren't thinking about at all. But now Bullard went one step further and he basically said, no, 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 we are talking about raising interest rates. But then he backtracked a little and said, well, we're not really talking about raising rates or tapering. We're talking about talking about raising interest rates or tapering. Because what he said is right now, we're talking about when we're going to start talking about it. But the actual conversations are still several meetings away. And then the actual tightening process, well, that's going to happen even later than that. Because by the time we actually start talking about raising rates, before we actually raise the rates that we talked about raising, we're going to give plenty of advance notice to the markets so they have time to digest, you know, ahead of time, the fact that we're going to do this. But what we've actually done in monetary policy is we've gone from not even thinking about, thinking about raising interest rates to now talking about, talking about raising interest rates. Of course, all this is a bunch of nonsense because the Federal Reserve has not actually done anything. But the markets are responding to this rhetoric as if they've actually done something substantive when they've done nothing at all. It is all much ado about nothing. Now, I'm sure that at some point, the Fed is going to go from talking about, talking about, raising interest rates to actually talking about raising interest rates. And maybe the markets will react to that as if, oh my God, they've just tightened further because now they're really talking about raising interest rates. But then what's next? How do they tighten monetary policy further once they're talking about raising interest rates, but without actually raising them? Well, I suppose the Fed can come out and say, okay, now we're seriously talking 
about raising interest rates. So now the market's going to be, oh my God, now they're serious. Now they're talking seriously. This is all a bunch of nonsense. The reason that the Fed just thinks about and talks about raising interest rates or tapering its asset purchases is it because it has no ability to actually do either. I mean, it could do it in theory if it didn't mind crashing the stock market, crashing the economy, maybe forcing the U.S. government to default on its debts, creating a much worse financial crisis than 2008, except with no bailouts. I mean, maybe if the Fed is willing to do all that, then sure, it can actually do what it's thinking about and talking about. But since it's not willing to do that, this is all a bunch of nonsense. It's like there's a big difference between thinking about going on a diet, talking about going on a diet, and actually going on a diet, right? It's very easy for somebody who's overweight to contemplate, maybe I should go on a diet. And it's even easy for someone who's overweight to tell their friends or to tell their spouse, yep, I'm going to go on a diet, right? You can talk about going on a diet all you want, but you're not going to lose any weight, especially if while you're thinking about dieting and telling your friends about your diet, you continue to overeat. You continue to stuff your face with junk food and between bites, you tell everybody about this diet that you're going to go on in the future. You are not only not going to lose weight, you're going to keep gaining weight. In fact, look at what the Federal Reserve is doing. Forget about what they're saying, about what they're thinking about and talking about. Look at what they're actually doing. On Thursday, we got the weekly report for the Fed's balance sheet, and it surged by $111.9 billion in one week. This is the biggest weekly increase in the Fed's balance sheet, I think in months. I don't remember the last time I saw a triple-digit increase in the balance sheet in one week. So we're now well above $8 trillion. The number I'm looking at is $8.064 trillion in the balance sheet. So while the Fed is talking about talking about tapering its asset purchases, which means purchasing fewer treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, while it's talking about purchasing fewer, it's actually purchasing much more. So it's expanding its asset purchase program as it's talking about contracting it. Again, it's like your fat friend talking about going on a diet as he's stuffing his face with more food. Look at what's happening with the reverse repo market. Take a look at that chart. It's off the charts. We're having a surge in these reverse repo agreements, meaning money supply is expanding rapidly while the Fed is, in theory, talking about tapering the expansion. So don't believe what the Fed says. Actually look at what the Fed does and understand that the Fed has absolutely no ability to do what it's claiming it's thinking about and talking about doing. Now, I think the Fed believes it's going to be able to get away with this because it did get away with it for a long time following the 2008 financial crisis. Because remember, for years, the Fed was able to tighten monetary conditions by talking about raising interest rates. They didn't actually raise them. It took about two years of talking before the Fed finally got around to its first quarter point rate hike. But the whole time it was talking about it, 
the markets expected the Fed to raise interest rates three or four times per year, you know, before it even raised them once. And when the Fed finally got around to its first rate hike, which was in December of 2015, when the markets reacted badly to that rate hike, they waited a year to raise them for a second time. And the only reason they were able to raise rates for a second time was because Donald Trump surprised everybody and won the election and created a lot of phony enthusiasm. And it was against that backdrop that the Fed was able to raise interest rates for a second time from 25 basis points up to 50 basis points. But remember, the markets had anticipated that rates would be much higher by then because of all the talking about rate hikes that never actually materialized. The same thing for shrinking its balance sheet, tapering. The Fed talked about tapering and then shrinking the balance sheet for a long time before it did it. Now, it actually was able to taper. That happened. It went from expanding its balance sheet to not expanding it at all. And then it eventually did start shrinking the balance sheet, but it never finished the journey, just like it never finished the journey of rate normalization. Because ultimately, that's what the Fed was talking about doing. It was talking about normalizing interest rates, which meant getting interest rates back up to a historic normal level. And they talked about shrinking the balance sheet back down to where it was pre-2008 financial crisis, which would have meant a balance sheet smaller than $1 trillion. And of course, we never came close to accomplishing either of those two goals which at the time was one of the reasons that I thought the Fed would never even embark on a journey that it couldn't complete because I thought that was very dangerous because if the Fed promised to normalize interest rates and then tried to do it and failed, that might expose the problem that the Fed had and it might be better if it never tried because then it could keep pretending that it could succeed. And I thought the same thing might be true with shrinking the balance sheet. If it tried and failed to shrink the balance sheet, I thought that might have been worse than never trying at all because then at least they can pretend they could do it. But by trying to do it and failing, they proved they couldn't. Well, I guess I was wrong because the markets still don't get it. And even after the Fed tried and failed to shrink a $4.5 trillion balance sheet, somehow now they believe that at some point in future, they will be able to succeed in shrinking a balance sheet that's already in excess of $8 trillion. Although I'm not sure anybody is talking about shrinking the balance sheet at this point. I think they're just talking about growing it at a slower pace. But at this point, I'm not even sure that that's possible nor would it be possible to ever normalize interest rates. I mean, last time they had to abort the process when they got to 2.5%. That was the most the overly indebted U.S. economy can handle before you know the wheels started coming off the bus. Well, given the fact that we have so much more debt now than we did back then, we're so much further levered up that we probably couldn't even handle 1%. I'm not even sure if we can handle 50 basis points. That's how screwed up the economy is now. So if the Fed ever embarks on this journey, we're not even going to come as close to completing it as we did last time. And we only got maybe halfway to normal, if that, before we had a reverse course. We're not even going to get that close the next time. You know, back then, I was comparing the Fed's rhetoric to 
George Costanza in Seinfeld, where he was basically, you know, lying to his future in-laws about owning a house in the Hamptons. And he would talk to them about this glorious house that he owns in the Hamptons and how they spend these uh, summer days there. And to the point where George actually invited the parents to come out to the Hamptons and stay at his house, and they agreed to go. And they all knew that there was no house. I mean, not only did George know he didn't have a house in the Hamptons, but his future in-laws knew he didn't have one either. But nobody wanted to tell the truth, and they each wanted to continue the charade to the point where they actually get in a car and start driving to the Hamptons. And even during the journey, they're talking about the house of the Hamptons that they're going to, and they all know that there is no house, yet they got in the car anyway and pretended that they were going to visit a non-existent house. And that's what it made me think of when I heard the Fed talking about how they were going to normalize interest rates and how they were going to shrink their balance sheet. I knew they couldn't do either, just like Costanza didn't have a house in the Hamptons. And it's almost like the markets knew that the Fed couldn't do this, but they didn't care because all they cared about is what the Fed was talking about, not what they actually had. Well, the reality is the last time they were able to get into the car, right? Because the Fed did start raising interest rates. The Fed did start shrinking its balance sheet. So in effect, they were in the car driving to the Hamptons, right? The Fed got nuts, which is what George said. He said, oh, you want to get nuts? Let's get nuts. So the Fed actually said, okay, you think we're going to normalize interest rates? You think we're going to shrink our balance sheet back down to where it was before the financial crisis? You know what? Let's get nuts. We're going to start the journey. We're going to get in this car and I'm going to pretend I'm going to take you to this non-existent house in the Hamptons. The house in the Hamptons was normal interest rates. The house in the Hamptons was a balance sheet smaller than the one that the Fed had before the financial crisis. That's the destination that they could never get to, but everybody got in the car and pretended that that's where we were going. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, 
it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp help.com slash gold say goodbye to your credit card rewards greedy corporate mega stores led by walmart and target are pushing for a law in congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets the durbin marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it if you love your credit card rewards tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards tell them to oppose the durbin marshall credit card bill Well, I think this time the problem is so big that there is no way we're getting in that car, right? We're going to talk about the house in the Hamptons and how nice it is. And we're going to talk about stuff like that, but we can't actually get in a car and pretend to drive there because then we actually have to start raising rates. Then we have to start tapering. And at this point, the problem is so much bigger than it was back then that I don't think we can get that far. I think the only thing we can do with respect to this house in the Hamptons is talk about how nice it is, but we can't get nuts by getting in the car and actually pretend that we're going to go there. Now, I was really excited when I found out that Clear wanted to sponsor the Peter Schiff Show podcast because I have been a happy customer of Clear for years. One of the best things about being a member is it really helps reduce stress you know that you're going to get to your flight much sooner if you've got clear. So it means the time that it takes to get from your car to your gate is dramatically reduced. Also, you don't necessarily need to show your ID to get through security because clear replaces the need for a physical ID. After a brief one-time enrollment with your government-issued ID, you can then use your face for future entries. It's easy to sign up, You create an account online before you go to the airport. Once you get to the airport, you'll be met by a clear ambassador that will help you finish the process. And then you're done. And Clear provides access to more than just airports. You know, once you become a member, you can actually use your Clear membership to gain access across the entire Clear network of not just airports, but stadiums, arenas, concert spaces, restaurants, and much more. It's great for families. You can get discounted rates off adult family members, up to three, and kids under 18, they're free. Of course, if you want to maximize your clear experience, you'll combine it with pre-check, which is what I did, and that makes the experience even faster. It's been a long time since I used my clear membership because since COVID, I haven't flown commercial, but I'm doing that for the first time on Tuesday for my trip to Europe, And I'm very happy about the fact that my experience at JFK Airport will be a lot less stressful given the fact that we're clear members. So for a limited time, you can get two months of clear for free 
by going to clearme.com slash gold2 and use promo code gold2. That's clear, C-L-E-A-R-M-E dot com slash gold2 using promo code gold2 for your first two months of clear for free, but the offer is only valid for a limited time, so act quickly. Now, I want to talk about some of the things that Bullard actually said, other than the fact that they're now talking about talking about tapering or raising rates. And one of the things he talked about was inflation. And Bullard did acknowledge that inflation, as measured by the CPI, was higher than what the Fed originally thought it would be. And this is supposedly a big revelation. Oh, my God, they're finally admitting that there's more inflation than they thought. And according to Bullard, I mean, he reiterated what we learned on Wednesday, that the Fed's new inflation forecast, and again, this is just the CPI, not actual inflation, but the Fed believes that the CPI is going to rise by 3.4% for all of 2021. Now, first of all, you got to remember that we've already gone up by 2.7% in the first five months of the year, 2.7. And the Fed's forecast for the entire year, as late as March, just a few months ago, was 2.4. So in March of this year, the Fed had an official forecast for the CPI of 2.4%. It would go up 2.4% in the 12 months of the year. Well, here we are, five months into the year, and we're already at 2.7. We're already 0.3% higher in five months in the CPI than what the Federal Reserve was forecasting as of March would be the entire gain for the year. So that shows you how ridiculous their forecasts are. But what's even more ridiculous is that they're still sticking to a current forecast of 3.4% for the entire year. Well, what that means is since we're already at 2.7 in five months, the only way the Fed is going to be accurate will be if over the next seven months, we only add another 0.7 to what we've already got. So in other words, the Fed is saying that monthly increases in the CPI for the rest of the year will average no more than 0.1, which means that if we do get some months that are above 0.1, we're probably going to have to have some months that are negative. Maybe the Fed actually thinks that consumer prices are going to start to fall at some point this year. I don't know why they think that. So far this year, the smallest monthly increase we had was in January, and that was 0.3. So every month since January has been above 0.3, yet the Federal Reserve now thinks that every month in the future is going to be not only below January, but 0.1, way below what we had in January. So this whole forecast of 3.4% is absurd. I mean, obviously, you're going to take the over on this ridiculous forecast, but rather than focusing on the absurdity of how low the forecast is, the markets are simply focusing on the fact that the Fed is acknowledging that the inflation problem is greater than they first thought. Now the question is, are they going to be forced to acknowledge that the inflation that they thought was transitory is in fact not transitory? And might that prompt 
the Fed to act even more aggressively than what is currently being contemplated, which again, is not aggressive at all. When you've got interest rates at zero and all you're doing is discussing whether or not you should slightly increase them from zero in a year or in two years or in three years, yet stay at zero the entire time, you are not talking about a hawkish Fed. The fact that this type of minimal increase in rates is hawkish. This shows you how low that hawkish bar has been lowered because in normal times, which is pretty much at any time in the past, what is now considered hawkish would have been considered extremely dovish. I mean, to keep interest rates this low for this long and to raise them by such a small amount at such a distant point in the future is an extremely dovish Fed. Yet, In the world that which we now live, where we have so much debt and the economy is so much screwed up, even that is considered to be tight monetary policy. Another thing that Bullard said, though, that I think scared the markets is he acknowledged that we may be in the midst of a housing bubble. And he said the Fed doesn't want to, you know, add fuel to the fire. So when talking about tapering, he seemed to indicate that the tapering may start with the mortgage-backed security market, that rather than reducing the purchase of treasuries, that it may initially reverse the purchase of mortgage-backed securities so it wasn't contributing to the housing bubble. That probably scared a lot of the home builders and a lot of stocks that might be related uh, to home building materials and things like that. But it also might have scared the markets to hear somebody from the FOMC admitting that maybe there's a bubble somewhere. Because up until this point, you know, these Fed guys keep saying they're not worried about financial bubbles. They don't see any bubbles. And now all of a sudden, you've got Bullard saying, hey, there may be a bubble in the housing market. Well, you know what? If there's a bubble in the housing market, maybe there's a bubble in the stock market too. And of course, if the Fed starts acknowledging that there's bubbles, well, maybe they'll feel obligated to prick them. And I think that's also scaring the markets. Although Bullard tried to reassure uh, the markets and you know the CNBC audience that when the Fed finally does embark on its tapering process, it's not going to be on autopilot. He referred to the last time they tapered and remember, you know, Janet Yellen said it's going to be like watching paint dry, like it's going to be no big deal. And they kind of were on autopilot. And even though they said they were data dependent, they seemed to ignore the data that they were supposedly depending on. And they just kept reducing or tapering their asset purchases by the same amount every meeting consistent with their forecast. Well, what Powell said this time is that we're really going to be data dependent. I mean, last time we just talked about being data dependent, but this time we mean it. So we're not going to just ignore the data. And even though we're on a glide path to taper, we're not just going to have blinders on because if the data comes out in a way that surprises us, well, we're going to alter our policy, meaning we may stop the taper. In fact, we may reverse and go the other way if need be. So don't worry. We're going to be very careful about this the next time so you don't have to worry. But I think the statements, again, that did worry the markets was the fact that Bullard acknowledged that if, of course, inflation surprises us, and it's higher than we think, which we don't believe will be the case. But if for some reason we're wrong, and of course they've been wrong about it before, that's why they had to increase their forecast 
But Bullard said, if we're wrong, well, then we've got the tools to fight it, meaning that we're going to have to raise rates even faster. We're going to have to taper to an even greater degree than what we're now contemplating. Of course, that's what's really scaring the markets, but that's not what's going to happen. Because remember, the Federal Reserve just assumes that the economy is in great shape and that it's going to keep on growing and everything is going to be fine. And against that backdrop of a booming economy and falling unemployment, right? Well, of course, the Fed is going to be able to deliver these rate hikes or do the tapering. But what if the Fed's rosy outlook for the economy is wrong? What if the economy actually starts to weaken before the Fed even gets around to hiking rates or tapering? What if just talking about talking about raising rates, what if just talking about tapering is all it takes to push the economy into recession? In fact, maybe we would have gone into a recession anyway, but maybe all this taper talk and rate hike talk is going to accelerate the process. In fact, look at some of the economic data that came out earlier in the week. Look at the housing starts and permits numbers that we got on Wednesday. These numbers were far below estimates. In fact, we revised down the housing starts from April from 1.569 million annualized to 1.517 million. And we dropped all the way down to one spot 572 million in May. May's number was a bit higher at one spot 572 million, but it was considerably below the 1.63 million that had been expected. Permits also were supposed to come in at 1.738 million, and instead they came in at 1.681 million. The reason that starts and permits are going down is because Americans can't afford to buy these houses because the prices are too high. And it costs too much to build them because the construction costs are so high. Well, what would happen to the housing market if the Fed actually started dumping or reducing its purchases of mortgage-backed securities, raising interest rates, mortgage rates would go up. And if Americans can't afford to buy these expensive homes now with interest rates at zero, it's going to be even more difficult to afford them if the Fed actually were to raise interest rates. Also, look at what happened with the jobless claims. We got these on Thursday. We now got a big spike, unexpected spike in weekly jobless claims back above 400,000. Last week's claims were 376,000 and people were excited because we were below 400,000. Well, we revised that slightly to 375,000, but the consensus forecast for this week was for the decline to continue. The forecast was for just 360,000 claims. Instead, we got 412,000 claims. We got a 37,000 claim increase, but relative to expectations, 52,000 more people filed for unemployment benefits than what the market expected. So if we have the housing market rolling over, if we have jobless claims increasing, maybe some of the firepower, some of the artificial impact of the stimulus is already wearing off because the effect of the stimulus on prices, prices are really going up 
and that is pulling down the ability of consumers to continue to buy stuff, even though they have more money to spend, everything they want to buy is more expensive. This is starting to take its toll. So the economy is already starting to weaken, which is something that is not in the Fed's forecast. That is why, as they continue to talk about tightening monetary policy and pretending the economy is strong, they continue to ease monetary policy because privately they must know that the economy is weak. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. It also reminds me of one of the sayings most closely associated with Teddy Roosevelt, and that's speak softly and carry a big stick. And in fact, Teddy Roosevelt's foreign policy was known as the big stick policy. And obviously what that reference meant was more of a non-interventionist foreign policy. The U.S. is not going to be out there, you know, aggressively agitating for war, but we have a big military. So in case somebody is dumb enough to attack us, we've got this big stick and we'll use it to fight back. Well, when it comes to monetary policy, the Fed's got no stick at all, right? It can't actually do what it's talking about doing. So it has to have the opposite of a big stick policy, which is a no stick policy. So when you don't have a stick at all, all you can do is bluff and pretend that you have one. So what we have to do at the Fed or what the Fed has to do is it has to speak loudly to substitute for the fact that it has no stick at all and hope that because it's speaking so loud that it never actually has to use this non-existent stick. I want to talk a little bit, though, about the market's reaction to this open-mouth policy to effectively tighten monetary conditions. The markets are continuing to react. Now, we did have a quadruple witching day on Friday, and so that might have thrown extra volatility into the mix. But the markets really were roiled by the Fed. Look at what happened in particular in the gold and silver market. Gold was down now for the third day in the row, same as silver, every day since the Fed surprised the markets, right, by being more hawkish. Gold was actually down 6% on the week. The price of gold now back down to 1763.80 is where it closed. We were at 1900, just slightly above 1900 last week. And so now we're down at 1763. I think there's some good support around 1750. Maybe that will hold. Beyond that, you have the March lows, which I assume are going to hold in this decline. And I think this is an excellent buying opportunity. I didn't necessarily expect it to materialize, uh, but I don't think you should look a gift horse in the mouth. The same thing with silver, but all commodities pretty much uh, were clobbered on the week. Look at copper. I mean, copper had its worst week since October of 2020. Soybeans had the worst week since 2014. So we have had some pretty big pullbacks 
in these commodity prices. That's causing a lot of people to believe, aha, you see, inflation was transitory because look at all these big drops. You have to put these big drops in context with the even bigger rises that preceded them. We are still up huge in these commodities. And even though there was a big move down, this is a lot of speculative-related movements. You have investors, speculators, who are now reversing their inflation bets on these commodities. But real-world demand is going to continue, even if speculative demand has diminished briefly uh, based on this technical action and this change in perception. The real-world trends that are driving commodity prices higher are going to continue And eventually the speculators will be back once they realize that they panicked for no reason and never should have, uh, you know, given up their seat on really what is going to be a freight train of higher prices across the board. But, you know, the one commodity market that wasn't derailed was oil. I mean, oil prices were actually up by about 0.3% on the week. We finished off the high. We got about as high as 72 before the Fed meeting, but we still closed above 70. It's the first time we've done this in a couple of years. We closed at $70.45. So even this huge sell-off in commodities, even this big rise in the dollar couldn't stop oil prices from going up, which means for everybody else, for the rest of the world, this was a huge up week in oil because while the price of oil went up, The dollar went up versus all the other currencies. And since oil is priced in dollars, oil prices shot up even more for the Europeans or for the Asians or for people in South America than it did for people in the United States. Speaking about the dollar, dollar index up about 2% on the week. It's its best week since April of 2020. Look at what happened to bond yields. They went down. Yields on the 30-year U.S. Treasury dropped from 2-spot 152 to 2-spot 027. On the 10-year, yields went down from 1.462 to 1.45. Even though the Fed is supposedly going to be raising rates, yields on the 30-year and the 10-year went down. Why? Well, because the markets are anticipating an economic slowdown. The yield curve has dramatically compressed because yields on the short end have spiked up. So you have yields on the two-year and the five-year going up, while you have yields on the 10-year to the 30-year going down. You have the yield curve flattening dramatically as a result of this shift. To me, it seems like the markets are already pricing in recession without understanding that if there's a recession, then none of these rate hikes, which are not even supposed to happen for a year or two or three, if the economy goes into recession, Before the rate hikes happen, then the rate hikes that everybody's afraid of happening won't even take place. Just talking about talking about raising interest rates may in fact take those rate hikes that you're talking about off the table because now the supposed economic recovery that is enabling you to raise rates is now gone simply because you've talked about raising rates. But what people don't seem to understand, and this is with respect to the U.S. dollar or with commodities or with gold, is a recession is not going to diminish inflation. A recession is going to make inflation worse because as the economy weakens, the monetary policy response is to create more inflation, print more money. 
And as people lose their jobs and are less productive, but the government keeps replacing their lost wages with money they print, you have less stuff and more money to buy the stuff, you have inflation. It is stagflation that's coming. So people who think a slowing economy is going to cool inflation and therefore they should be selling gold and they should be buying dollars, they're wrong. The weaker U.S. economy ensures stronger inflation, and stronger inflation means a weaker, not a stronger dollar. Getting to the markets themselves, the stock markets, again, I said the Dow was down on the day. In fact, it was down 3.5% on the week. That is the worst week for the Dow also since October of 2020. Russell 2000 down even more, 4% there. S&P only down 2%. And the reason the S&P was only down 2% was because you had tech stocks, many of them rising, some of them making new highs on the day. The NASDAQ actually finished the week positive. It was down a bit on Friday, but eked out a third of a percent gain on the week. You know, what's happening this week because of this surprise right by the Fed is everybody is reversing the trades they had on. They are rotating back out of value and dividend-paying stocks, economically sensitive, cyclical-type stocks, materials, energy. They're dumping all those stocks, and they're going back into growth. They're buying the tech stocks because they think the reflation trade is over. Inflation is now gone, and we're back to a market where we just have slow growth, low interest rates, no inflation, and so everybody wants to buy these momentum stocks. This is ridiculous. This has not happened. Nothing has changed. This is a head fake. Look, the fact that oil stocks were among the weakest stocks in the market, even though the price of oil went up on the week, and oil stocks never even recovered what they lost as a result of the pandemic, even though oil prices right now are higher than they were before the pandemic, Oil prices are still way below, and they were way below those levels before they got clobbered this week. But energy, not the only sector getting hit hard. Obviously, uh, the material stocks getting clobbered. Gold and silver stocks in particular were among the biggest, maybe the biggest losers on the week. The GDX was down 11%. That was actually more than the decline in the GDXJ, which are the juniors, that one is normally a more vowel index. It only dropped 10.3%. So what that tells me is the selling is from the big guys. The bigger institutions are basically dumping their gold stocks. They own the big ones and they're getting rid of them because they think, oh, there's no longer any inflation to hedge. The Fed has now vanquished inflation simply by moving from not thinking about thinking about thinking about raising interest rates to talking about talking about raising them, well, that's enough to vanquish inflation. And so we could dump all of our gold stocks. We no longer need them. We're going to go back into the momentum stocks. Financial stocks also getting beaten up. Look at that regional bank index. That was down about 7% on the week. Again, if the yield curve is flattening, 
that's perceived as being bad for banks because they can't make as much profit if there's not a big difference between the cost of borrowing money from the Fed and what they can get lending it out as the yield curve compresses, so too do their profits. Of course, what's really going to kill the banks is going to be defaults when a lot of the loans they've made end up going bad and they don't get their money back. I mean, that is what's coming. And in fact, that is what would happen if the Fed were to actually deliver the rate hikes that it's been thinking about and now talking about, talking about implementing, if it were to ever happen, the losses at these banks would be horrific, which is why the Fed is just going to keep on talking, but they're not going to do anything. Now, for those of you who are interested in what might have happened to Bitcoin as a result of all this volatility, not much. I mean, Bitcoin actually remained relatively stable. I mean, stable for Bitcoin, not necessarily stable for any other asset class, but relative to what Bitcoin might have done, it really didn't do very much. I mean, it hung in there. As I am recording this podcast, we're a little bit below 36000 35800 on the price of Bitcoin. So Bitcoin didn't rise, uh, but it didn't really get clobbered. I think on the week, uh, it might have been down maybe 2-3%. I mean, it's hard to say where the week ends for Bitcoin, but it held up relatively well. But my guess is the next move with Bitcoin is going to be another major move down. We are consolidating the last big drop, and the next likely move is another big drop in Bitcoin, probably somewhere down near 20,000. That is the old high, and so it makes sense that that would be the next level of support. Ultimately, I don't think that level is going to hold, but you know, you have uh, all of the pumpers and the big Bitcoin proponents trying their best to talk the market up. Now, I thought it was interesting or funny. I'm watching on CNBC and on Wednesday, they're interviewing the CEO of General Motors and they're asking her questions. And then they start asking her about Bitcoin and they say, do you have any plans to accept payment in Bitcoin? I mean, what an asinine question to ask the CEO of General Motors. Why would they be even thinking about something like that? They got all sorts of serious things that they got to consider when they're running their company. Why on earth would they consider taking Bitcoin for their cars? I mean, the only car company that does that is Tesla in the whole world. And I think before they stopped accepting Bitcoin, maybe they sold one car in Bitcoin. The whole thing is a gimmick. So you have lots of serious questions that you can ask the CEO of a major company. Why ask something so ridiculous as, are you going to start selling your cars for Bitcoin? I mean, I wish she would have just mentioned to the interview, I forget who was doing the interview, you know, how absurd that question is. And I mean, why are you asking me such a ridiculous question? So instead, she was kind of polite and said, well, you know, we don't really have any plans to do that. But of course, you know, we're always open and we're trying to, you know, do what our customers want. Of course, their customers don't want them to accept payment in Bitcoin because even the people who have Bitcoin don't want to give them up to buy a car. They want to keep their Bitcoin. If they're going to buy a car, they want to pay for it in fiat. But the whole thing is, that CNBC is crypto news Bitcoin. It's all about Bitcoin. You can't go on CNBC without being asked to comment about Bitcoin. It doesn't matter who you are, you're going to be asked. In fact, during the Bullard uh, interview, several questions were asked about Bitcoin. In fact, one of the questions 
that Bullard was asked is if he was concerned about all these people who are buying Bitcoin as a hedge against inflation, that after all, the Fed doesn't think there's a need to hedge inflation because it thinks it's transitory. So she's asking him, you know, are you concerned or what do you think about people buying Bitcoin as a hedge against inflation? And really the only thing he said was, well, I don't know why they're buying Bitcoin to hedge inflation. If they want to hedge inflation, they should be buying tips because tips are a pure play on the CPI. So if you think the CPI is going to be higher uh, than the markets, then you should buy tips because then you'll profit. And of course, that's what governments always want Americans to do who are worried about inflation is to buy tips because you're still buying government bonds. You're still lending money to the U.S. government. It just means the U.S. government is obligated to pay you a higher rate of interest and the extra interest is going to be a function of the CPI. Well, since the CPI is rigged, since the CPI is never going to honestly reflect the loss of purchasing power of the dollar and the true degree to which consumer prices are rising, the government still makes out like a bandit if you're dumb enough to buy tips because they're still going to rip you off because they're not going to pay you as much interest as the value of your money is losing. Now, you're not ripped off as much as you would have been had you bought regular treasuries. So it's a little bit less of a ripoff to buy tips. But who knows? I mean, they may dramatically change the CPI in the future, and your tips are going to be adjusted to whatever the CPI is, not what the CPI used to be. So they can change the rules of the game while the game is being played. So you can buy tips based on the CPI being a certain way, and then they can totally change the CPI so that the number is going to be much smaller. And now the tips that you own, well, they're linked to that new rigged CPI, not the older CPI that was less rigged when you bought the tips. So my advice is if you really are worried about inflation, don't hire the fox to guard your hen house. Just buy some real money, which is gold and silver, or take refuge in real assets, get out of paper and get into stuff, buy foreign stocks, uh, value stocks, dividend-paying stocks outside the United States. That is how to avoid inflation. Also, on a personal note, I want to mention that I finally got my Twitter account verified. And it's kind of funny the way the verification process unfolded because On Thursday, I finally got official notice from Twitter that my request to be verified was rejected. They said, you know, your request was turned down. You can apply again in 30 days. And to me, it made no sense that my request was turned down because I met every single category that is required for verification. In fact, there are many different categories where you only have to meet maybe one or two criteria and they give you a list of like four or five and it's like well if you meet one or two of these you'll get verified I meet every one so I am more than entitled to verification based on the criteria so it didn't make any sense to me that they had rejected me so I tweeted out the fact that I got rejected and I did call attention to Jack Dorsey say hey Jack what's up what you know why did you reject me and that particular tweet got a lot of traction on Twitter, got a lot of retweets, got a lot of likes. And so the very next morning, 
I get another notification. I get an email from Twitter congratulating me that they had verified my account. Now, I never resubmitted the application, so clearly the tweet made a difference. Somehow, Jack Dorsey or somebody saw that tweet, looked into it, and said, hey, how did we reject this guy? And then they changed their decision and uh, verified the account. So A, Twitter works. I mean, the people spoke. There was some pressure put on Jack Dorsey, and I am now verified on Twitter. So hopefully now I have 522,000 Twitter followers. Maybe the fact that I'm verified now will help me get even more followers. So if you're not following me, you should follow me. And now you know which one is the real me because I'm verified. You know, by the way, I still want to get a lot more followers on Instagram. I barely have over 75,000 followers on that platform. And I think there's a lot of good stuff that we're posting on the Instagram account. And it really is going to help me, I think, get to a younger demographic because there's a lot of younger people that are on Instagram. So if you're not currently following me on Instagram, why don't you do that as well? You know, I've noticed that quite a few people who are following me, started following my wife on Instagram as well. And so that's fine if you want to follow her. She posts a lot of family stuff. But the important thing is to follow me because on my Instagram site, I'm putting out a lot of important information on the economy, on the markets that a lot of young people need to hear. And this may be a better medium uh, for me to disseminate that information. So if more and more people follow me, well, that will help Additional people follow me and help me spread the word on that other platform. 